We are going to start a brand new sermon series, and I am excited to start this series uh, today. And the reason why I'm excited is because over the past couple of years, I have talked with a lot of different people uh, who have said similar things to me, such as, uh, my life is so upside down right now. Uh, I've had people say things like, I don't know which way is up. Uh, I've had people say things like, I feel like my life has gone off the rails. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to take a look at what we can do in different areas of our lives, uh, specifically w- what we can do when our family's a train wreck. Has anybody ever felt like your, your, your family's a train wreck or, or your schedules are a train wreck? Uh, I got to admit, uh, next week, Kendall's going to preach on schedules being a train wreck. I thought he was the perfect one to speak on that. Uh, when our schedules are a train wreck, when our jobs are a train wreck, and when our faith is a train wreck. Now, believe it or not, we are only six weeks away from Thanksgiving. We're 10 weeks away from Christmas. Does anybody else think that's just nuts right now, or is it just me? Uh, Some of us feel like with the holidays uh, looming, uh, we feel like our families are a train wreck, and maybe we're not looking forward to the holidays at, at all. And so I, I hope that this first sermon that we talk about really uh, can, can help you in a, in a, in a big way. Uh, I heard about an elderly man in Phoenix who one day before Thanksgiving, he called his son in New York and said to him, uh, son, I hate to ruin your day, but I have to tell you that after 45 years of marriage, your mother and I are getting a divorce. Uh, it's enough. I'm sick of her, and she's sick of me, and you need to call your sister in Chicago and tell her. Frantic, the son called his sister, and she exploded on the phone, and she said, like heck, they're getting divorced, and she said, I'm going to take care of this, and so she called Phoenix immediately and said to her father, you are not getting divorced. Don't, say, don't do a thing, single thing until I get there. I'm calling my brother back. We'll both be there tomorrow. Until then, don't do a thing. Do you hear me? And the man hung up his phone and turned to his wife and said, okay, honey, the kids are coming home for Thanksgiving, and we don't have to pay for it. (laughs) Now, that's messed up, and and, uh, hopefully you aren't that messed up where you'd resort to something like that, but our families are the most important things in our lives, right? We live with them. We love them. But if we're honest, um, sometimes our families can be a little bit of a train wreck. And uh, I want to take a look at what the Bible says about a certain family, how they responded, how we can maybe respond in a similar way uh, if you feel like your, your family's off the rails a little bit. And in order to do this, I want to introduce you to a family from the Old Testament. Uh, and uh, um, this family is known to most of us as a family of great faith, but uh, they had some struggles as well. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the book of Genesis, and we're going to start in chapter 15. We're going to start with Abraham. We're going to end with Joseph. We're going to talk about some of that stuff that happened in between. We're going to learn about some important things that happened in, in the family, the patriarch of our faith. And, 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 and it's encouraging me to look at people like this because when I look at people who had messed up families, who had a little bit of a train wreck of a family, and I look at how God has been good to me and my family, that makes me feel pretty good. And it makes me realize that, man, the little problems that I sometimes have in my life are nothing in comparison to what some of the fathers of the faith had to go through. And so while you're turning there, I'm going to go ahead and give you the first point in our outline this morning. If you don't have your Bibles, you can follow along on the screen. And here's our first point. If you're taking notes, 
notes. We need to learn to trust God when it doesn't make sense. A couple of weeks ago, we just talked about this a couple of weeks ago talking about Abraham and how God promised that he was going to give him an heir. And in Abraham's mind, he, he's thinking, maybe I misunderstood God. Maybe God didn't say he's going to give me uh, a, a son. Maybe he's, he's just going to give me an heir. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take my servant and I'm going to just adopt him and make him an heir. Uh, but look at verse 4 of Genesis 15. The Lord said to him, Abraham, no, your servant will not be your heir for you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. So basically, Abraham starts to run ahead of God when God's not making sense to him, when, he, when it seems like God is not delivering on his promise, Abraham jumps ahead of God and says, listen, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And, and, and I'm just going to guess that when, when your family seems like it's in a train wreck, it's, it's usually when you take matters into your own hand and you're not trusting God with the situation that's going on. And so this is what Abraham is doing. God promises Abraham a son. And this is a truly incredible promise as we've talked about before when you consider all of the circumstances Abraham is concerned because both he and his wife are they're getting up there in age and and uh, they're thinking how in the world can we have a child of our own there's no possible way but how many of you have ever discovered in your life that when God doesn't make sense sometimes that seems to be when God comes through has anybody ever experienced that before when you're sitting back and you're saying there's just no possible way this could happen and then out of nowhere God makes something miraculous happen in a situation that you didn't even see coming and what may be true in your own life is 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 certainly true in this particular case here uh where where you can look at examples of God's faithfulness in your past and and see how God has come through but then when you arrive at the situation you're in right now you forget about the promises and the times that God has come through for you. Has anybody ever done that? Where you've seen God come through time and time and time again, and now here you are up against your own Red Sea, so to speak, and you don't think God's going to come through again. And the question we need to ask ourselves is this, and it's a very simple question. What promise is God speaking in your life right now? What promise is God speaking in your family's life right now? And maybe you can't hear the audible voice of God speaking to you, but I believe if you were to take time and you were to prayerfully consider and prayerfully look at what's going on in your life right now, and you look around at all of the blessings that God has given to you, everywhere you turn, you're going to see the promises of God. You're going to see the reminders of God that are everywhere in your life. I love that song we sing, I see the evidence of your goodness all over my life. And this story goes on as God makes a promise not only to Abraham, but then to Sarah herself. Take a look at chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Where is Sarah, your wife, the visitors asked. These visitors were sent by God. And where is Sarah, your wife? She's inside the tent, Abraham replied. Then one of them said, I will return to you about this time next year, and your wife Sarah will have a son. Sarah was listening to this conversation from the tent. Abraham and Sarah were both very old by this time. And Sarah was long past the age of having children. And this is great. So she laughed silently to herself and said, how could a worn out woman like me enjoy such pleasure, especially when my master, my husband, is also so old? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? 
Why did she say, can an old woman like me have a baby? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? I will return about this time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah couldn't believe it. God was speaking to her, made a promise, and she's looking at her situation, and she's saying there's no way possible that God can do anything, and she actually laughed that, that someone had the audacity to say that this could happen. But sure enough, we know that God came through. God gave a child to an old, old couple. I'm not going to say their age because some of you might be in that ballpark, and I don't want you to think that, that, that I think you're there, uh, old, but... but uh, I better shut up right now or I'm going to get myself in a lot of trouble. But Isaac, their, their son, was soon born. And, and, and God delivered on this patriarchal promise made to Abraham. And can you imagine? Can you imagine what's going on in their mind? Can you imagine the scenes prior to Isaac's birth? You know, they're probably thinking, man, do we even start preparing for the birth? Should we? Should we worry about it? Or are we just hearing things from God that aren't true? And a valid question, all things considered, in this particular story, Abraham and Sarah's lives were probably pretty much off the rails at this time. Their life was probably a train wreck. They're probably thinking, we left everything that we knew behind. We left everything that we were comfortable with, everybody that we knew, the land that was ours we pulled up stakes, we moved out, and we went out, and we followed God, and now nothing, no promise, no nothing. And so they're probably thinking their lives are completely off the rails, but then God, in the midst of their lives being completely off the rails, does the thing that he does best, and he fulfills his promise. Abraham and Sarah learned to do one of the toughest things we're called to do, and that's trust God, even when it doesn't make any sense. There have been a few times in my life where I've had to do that. I remember at the age of 23, leaving Stacy behind after three and a half years of dating. And uh, I headed off to Bible college, right? I didn't have the money, not even close to having the money. Didn't know where it was going to come from. I was afraid to get up in front of people and speak. Think about that. I, 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 could, I was petrified. Absolutely petrified. And I'd sung in front of thousands, but to speak, no, wasn't going to do it. I had to sell my car that I was making payments on so I could afford to go, but then I was going to a big city with no car, right? I'd been out of high school for five years, and let's just say that when I was in high school, I wasn't exactly preparing myself for college. You do the math, all right? And, and the move didn't make a whole lot of sense. It didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. It didn't make a whole lot of sense to the people around me, but I knew that it was what God was asking me to do, and so I trusted God, and He came through for me. And the world was inviting me to do my own thing and forget about God's promises, forget about His faithfulness. But I decided, after looking back on my life, I could see that God's track record was flawless in my life. And I could believe that he wouldn't fail me now. He provided a way for me to go. He provided a car for me. I had a friend out of nowhere just show up and said, hey, I want to take you and buy you a car. Bought me a car. A little Ford Escort with a hatchback. It didn't work, but it, it was, you know, it was all right. It got me where I was going. He got me over my fear, for the most part, of public speaking. 
And the reason I say for the most part is whenever I have to stand up and preach in front of other preachers, that gets me a little nervous. But, but uh, God has come through. And so I ask you, what about you and your family? There might be some areas of your life where God's trying to strengthen you in your faith. Or maybe, maybe it's not, maybe it's not God, maybe it's Satan that's working in your life or in your family's life, but God wants to take that situation and use it for good and for his glory if you trust him. And so when it seems like your life might be a little bit chaotic and maybe everything feels wrong, I think that's when God works the best. If you just trust him, even when it doesn't make sense. And as we look at this family, Abraham and Sarah didn't make much sense. And then Isaac's born. What about Isaac? The train wreck gets even worse when Isaac's born. Uh, he marries a woman named Rebecca. And the story, story reminds us that we need to pour out our love equally. We know that they have a couple of sons, right? They have twins. Esau, who was born first, he's the older, Jacob. Based on what we know uh, about the New Testament era, Esau was the rightful owner of the birthright. In other words, he's the first in line. He's the heir. But here's where it gets off the rails. Here's where it gets a little bit messy. Jacob, he's jealous of the fact that Esau is going to be the heir. And so he desires this birthright. And he will seemingly do anything that he can do to, to be the heir to uh, you know, to, to have birthrights. And so he makes Esau swear to, tell, uh, to sell all his rights as the firstborn child in exchange for a meal when he was hungry. And Jacob does all this without Isaac even knowing. So, so here's what he does. If you look at Genesis 27, we're not going to read the whole thing. I'll try to summarize it for you as best I can. Even though Jacob and Esau were twins, Esau was actually born first. He's the one that would receive Isaac's blessing as a firstborn son. Jacob goes around and does his best impression of his brother. Right? And so here's the deal. Isaac, his, his eyesight has gotten bad. And so uh, Jacob goes around. He does his best impression of his brother. He even fools his dad so that his dad gives him his blessing and Jacob becomes the rightful heir. And these are extreme measures that Jacob is willing to go. But the key component, here's the kicker. It wasn't bad enough as if Jacob was fooling his dad and lying to his dad and, and selling his brother out. Rebecca, their mother, she's in on it. Rebecca's in on the lie. She's willing to help Jacob, her son, trick Isaac, her husband. You, you think your family's messed up. You think about this for, for a moment, and, and we look at this, and we go, what can we learn about these parents? What can we learn about uh, Isaac and, and Rebecca as parents? Well, if you look back a couple of chapters, chapter 25, uh, Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game Esau brought home, but Rebecca loved Jacob, chapter 25, verse 28. So Isaac had a favorite. It was Esau. Rebecca had a favorite. It was Jacob. Now be honest with me. How many of you in your family, you had a favorite in your family? You, you know, your, your parents had a favorite. Be honest. 
Come on, come on. Yeah, I know, I know. I was. I was my dad's favorite. I know I was the youngest of five. You look at my four older siblings, you would totally understand uh, why. And, and, you know, I jokingly say mom and dad kept trying until they got it right. And uh, so, uh, but in, in all, all, all seriousness, man, you start playing favorite. This is what... This is what Isaac and Rebekah were doing with Jacob and Esau. They had favorites. And I'm not, I'm not here to try to tell you how to raise your kids. But I'm going to give you a glimpse into the lives of some parents that did play favorites and how that turned out. Turned out to be a train wreck. And so what should our response be? I think Jesus, as parents, number one, or, or maybe you've got some, a similar situation uh, going on in your family where maybe if a, a child feels like they're the favorite or maybe one child is jealous of another because they think their parents have, have made them the favorite, whatever the case may be. John chapter 15, verse 12 and 13, Jesus said this. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I've loved you, there's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friend. And so Jesus, in this one, these couple of verses here, models for us how to love others well. No matter what their title might be, no matter what their relationship might be, he says the most effective way to love is to love the same way that he loves us. And that goes for every relationship that we have, even more importantly in our families. And how did Jesus love us? He loved us unconditionally. He loves us all equally. And he loves us sacrificially. And maybe you're here today and you come from a family where this wasn't the type of love that you experienced. Maybe this type of love wasn't present. I'm here to let you know from personal experience that this is the type of love that God has for all of us. He loves us unconditionally. He loves us equally. He loves us sacrificially. Now, I'm going to tell you, this type of love requires commitment. It requires time. It requires dedication. It invites us to lay aside our own desires, our own wants, to sacrifice for other people. It teaches us to love our families, our friends, our co-workers, and even strangers because of who they are, not what they do or what they can do for us. And if you're, if you're desiring insight into just who God loves, let me remind you of a little verse you might have heard of called John 3.16. This is how God loved the world. He gave His one and only Son that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. And so I think God is asking us to pour our love out equally, especially to those that we're closest to, our families. For God so loved the whole world. And while it might not be possible for us to accomplish that in our lifetime because we can't get around to the whole world, right? None of us are going to be able to do that. I believe that we can love in this way the people that God allows to become a part of our world. The ones with whom we come into contact. We need to love in this way. 
But there's one more progression that we see here in this family that we got to take a look at, and this is the guy Joseph, right? And so we've got, we've got Abraham and Sarah, and then we've got Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau and all that. And now we're down to Joseph. This is in the same lineage. Joseph is an illustration of our final point, and that's this. We need to forgive one another. Plain and simple. Joseph is one of the 12 sons of Jacob, and at one point in the story, he has a series of dreams, and they're interpreted, and essentially these dreams are elevating Joseph over all of his brothers, and as you can imagine, um, they're not a huge fan of this, and so they become jealous. And, and Joseph, I can just kind of picture that Joseph is the kind of guy that's maybe even taunting them a little bit, you know. It's like, hey guys, look at my coat. Look at the pretty colors on my coat, you know. I don't know if he was hilljack like that, but, you know, he, he's probably taunting it, and he's saying, look, he, Caleb thinks he was a bit of a hilljack. Okay. Caleb would say that. Uh, and, and so J- Jacob is taunting it a little bit. I'm dad's favorite, blah, 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 blah. God gave me these special abilities. Uh, dad gave me this pretty coat. And, and so the brothers are, are kind of sick of it. And this family once again becomes a train wreck because here's what the word of God says. So when Joseph arrived, his brothers ripped off the beautiful robe he was wearing. Then they grabbed him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Then just as they were sitting down to eat, they looked up and saw a caravan of camels in the distance coming toward them. It was a group of Ishmaelite traders taking a load of gum, balm, and aromatic resin from Gilead down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain by killing our brother? We'd have to cover up the crime. Instead of hurting him, let's sell him to those Ishmaelite traders. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. So when the Ishmaelites, who were Midianite traders, came by, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern, sold him to them for 20 pieces of silver, and the traders took him to Egypt. Again, you think your family's messed up. (laughs) These brothers sold their little brother. And my brothers used to pick on me something fierce, but I don't think once. Well, maybe there was that one time. (laughs) They, maybe, Maybe twice. They thought about, you know, getting rid of me. But if you know the story, you know that God's hand was on Joseph. And even though he was in Egypt and he faced a lot of setbacks along the way, he finds great success and he finds great favor because of what God is doing in his life. And he becomes uh, number two right behind Pharaoh. Right? He is, he's leading Egypt right next to Pharaoh. He's, he's elevated to second in command, and it puts him in charge of distributing food when the famine hits. And his power and his authority and his responsibility becomes enormous compared to where he came from. You think about this, this youngest brother that was thrown in a cistern and then sold into slavery is now such a powerful person. Only God can do that. But then after all these years of being separated from his family, and now because of a terrible situation in the land, the famine, he once again is reunited with his family. And the big question is, how will he respond? I don't know how I would respond. I'm not sure I would have responded in the way that Joseph did if my family did to me what Joseph's family did to him. But after all these years, they're reunited. 
And here's what happens. They sent a message, his family, sent a message to Joseph. because they. And I've skipped some of the, the story. They, 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 they realize who he is, and there's a lot more to the story. I encourage you to, to read it in Genesis uh, chapter 50. But they send a message to Joseph, and uh, they said this. Before your father died, he instructed us to say to you, please forgive your brothers for the great wrong they did to you for their sin in treating you so cruelly. So we, the servants of the God of your father, beg you to forgive our sin. And when Joseph received the message, he broke down and wept. They understood that Joseph's power in Egypt was huge. And so they begged for forgiveness. They begged for mercy. Uh, And that's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to ask for, and it's a hard thing to, to give. Would you agree with me? Whether we're talking about our family members or whether we're talking about complete strangers, to forgive someone for the wrong that they have committed in your life and in the lives of those that you love, that's difficult. But I hope you would agree with me that Christians of all people should lead the way in this area. That we should forgive because Christ has forgiven us. Some of you might remember this story. It was June seventeenth, two 2015. There was a guy by the name of Dylan Roof. R-O-O-F. I didn't want to. I wanted to clarify the spelling so you didn't think it was relation to Donna. Dylan Roof entered a Bible study group at the Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Even though Dylan was white, he received a warm welcome from the all-black congregation. And when the group closed their eyes in prayer, Roof pulled out a gun and murdered nine people and injured several others. At his bail hearing a few days later, some of the surviving relatives expressed their efforts to work through their anger and through their pain, and they showed up at his bail hearing and offered genuine forgiveness and offered to pray with him, this white supremacist. That's amazing. I don't know if I could do that. Renee Napier lost her 20-year-old daughter, Megan, to a drunk driver. Eric Smallridge was his name. He was advised by his lawyer that when he got to court, show absolutely no emotion in court. Uh, bad advice. I don't know if you, you, you lawyers there would agree with that or not, but it, this was bad advice. The jury didn't like his apparent lack of remorse, quickly found him guilty of vehicular homicide. The judge likewise threw the book at him. 18-year-old sentence was given to send a message to others. But before he was locked up, Renee, the mother who had lost her daughter, told him she approached him and said, I forgive you. Her family eventually followed suit. The entire family forgave him. And then she started going around to schools, towing her daughter's wrecked car to area high schools 
and started speaking out against drunk driving. But she realized from the very beginning, she said, that something was missing. And so she went to the prison and she lobbied the prison authorities and eventually the governor and got permission for Eric Smallridge to accompany her to schools. And Eric would stand in front of a student body in his bright orange prison uniform bound in shackles and spoke of the dangers of drunk driving. And Renee started sharing her story of the power of forgiveness. And in a news interview, here's what she said. I could hate Eric Smallridge forever, and that's not going to bring Megan back. When it comes to forgiveness, it doesn't feel like it's the right thing to do. It doesn't match what you're feeling on the inside sometimes, but it is the right thing to do. We live in a world where there's a lot of pain and heartache, and I want to promote love and forgiveness and try to break that cycle of hatred. She didn't stop there. She went on and she appealed to Eric's parole board, eventually helped to get him released after serving just half of his sentence. And Matthew West, I don't know if you've heard this song or not, he even wrote a song based on a story called Forgiveness. You've probably heard it on the radio if you listen to Caleb or Bridge FM. And in that song, he borrowed a line from Pastor Lewis Smeeds who said, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. When you hold on to bitterness, when you refuse to forgive someone who's wronged you, you're, you're hurting more than than they are. You're hurting yourself because God designed us to forgive. God designed us not to nurse our anger forever. And I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say that a vast majority of train wrecked families involve unforgiveness somewhere down the line. And listen, I, I get it. I didn't grow up in a perfect family. My family was great. I was blessed. But we were not without our problems. At times, things were not ideal. There were times when we needed to forgive one another. But the one thing that my parents were really, really good at was forgiveness. And I'm so thankful that I had that model to grow up with. I try to be that way as much as I can, even though I'm not always good at it. I don't always do it immediately. I don't always do it as quickly as I need to. But I would encourage you to be as much like Joseph as you possibly can, toward, especially toward your family. If your family's a train wreck, listen, I believe that you, you can be the key to getting it back on the rails. Look at what Joseph does in this story. Genesis 50, verses 19 through 21. Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. No, don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. So he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. So Joseph doesn't just forgive them, but he promises to help them. 
in their time of need. And when we really think about it, when we really just sit down and think about it, I would assume that this type of view of our family is one that we all share. We want to help. We desire to help when they're in need. We want to see our families succeed. We want to love our families the very best that we possibly can. So what's stopping us? It's a decision. It's a choice. It's a choice that we make. The Bible reminds us time and time again that Forgiveness is an integral part of our relationship with others. As Jesus is hanging on the cross, the very ones who are taking his life that are mashing the crown of thorns into his head and who's running a spear into his side and driving the nails into his feet and into his hands, he says, Father, forgive them. I hope you've seen today that our families, whether we like it or not, can sometimes be a train wreck. Sometimes they can get under our skin a little bit. Sometimes there is chaos. Sometimes there's storms. Sometimes there's a lot of frustration. But I think the Bible has given us very clear keys to respond well in these situations and in these seasons, and that is to trust God, love each other equally, Learn to forgive. And I think the ball's in our court in each of these situations. We're going to choose to love our kids equally. We're going to collectively, as a family unit, unit, trust God even when it doesn't make sense. Are we willing to forgive those who have hurt us? These are key moments. It's up to you. Uh, if your family seems off the rails, this is how we can get them back on track. It's by trusting Him today. And uh, maybe there are some of you that need to trust him um, individually. Maybe it's just a personal thing that you're dealing with. Maybe it's not even family related yet. It's just you. Maybe you've not trust him, trusted him with, with your life, with your salvation. You've never confessed Jesus as the Christ. You've never repented of your sins or been baptized into him. We encourage you to do that today. Our worship team's going to come. We're going to offer a a song of decision, and and as we uh, as we sing, I'm gonna, I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we sing. Um, whatever it is that that you need today, we want to we want to meet you here, and we want to we want to pray with you, and we want to help meet that need as a family because we we're a spiritual family, and all of the same principles that I was applying to our biological family. They apply in our spiritual family as well. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are thankful um, for your forgiveness. We're thankful for your love. We're thankful that even though you knew the poor choices that we would make, sins that we would commit, yet you still chose to leave heaven and come and die for us. You've forgiven us of so much, Lord. Would you just help us, Lord, to trust you even when it doesn't make sense, to love one another equally, Lord, to forgive where we need to forgive. We pray all of this 
in the name of your son, Jesus.